0: So, I, uh, wow, that's loud. Um, I woke up with a really bad cold. Um, so, uh, and I was gonna preach with face mask on, but I can't see, uh, I'm fogging like constantly. So we're gonna, uh, I've tested twice for uh, negative for, for COVID, but we're gonna just trust it's not COVID and no one in the front row is gonna get anything. So we're, we're gonna call it good. If you are a first-time guest, uh, welcome. Um, I'm not going to be sticking around, uh, so I hope you will come back so that I can actually meet you in person. Um, And if you are part of the church family, um, I will not be greeting you with a holy kiss uh, this morning. So uh, if any of you were were worried about that, uh, we're we're safe this week. Um, Back in the fall of 1992, I transferred to John Brown University, where on my second day there, I met this extremely outgoing girl from Kansas named Leanne. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Leanne is now my wife. Um, but at the moment, it was not exactly love at first sight. Uh, I don't think she was really all that attracted to a short nerd. Uh, yeah. And uh, I was a little bit taken aback by the extreme extroversion that was just emanating from this woman. You've got to realize her freshman year, her goal was to know the name of everyone on campus, all right? This was a school of like 1,200 people. And she wanted to know the first name of everyone. So she saw a new person. Hey, I don't know this person. I want to know their name. So it it wasn't exactly like, hey, you want to go on a date? But she felt sorry for the uh, transfer student who had no friends. Uh, So she came and sat by me in class and over the next several weeks, I began to realize what an incredible woman this was, and I began to develop these fond feelings for her. I made it kind of known to a couple of the guys in my, we called them Sweet, S-U-I-T-E, told a couple of guys that I was thinking about asking Leanne out, and they kind of indicated she was out of my league. Well, I ignored them and proceeded to want to make my feelings known, and so I wanted to give her a gift. Now, keep in mind, I'm a college sophomore at this point. I have no money. And so what does a broke, hopeless romantic do to let his feelings know, be known for this girl? Well, he puts together a collection of coupons. Yes, these are the actual coupons. This is embarrassing. I scanned these in yesterday. Uh, all of them were redeemable at the nearest Bird, And uh, they were things like, I'll take you on a walk. Uh, I'll take you out for dinner. Again, no money. So it was Taco Bell. Um, but <laughs> It was my attempt to say, hey, I'd like to spend more time with you. Now, Leanne said that when she got these, she was both simultaneously excited and freaked out. (laughs) Excited because she thought, this is an incredibly sweet and thoughtful gesture. Freaked out because, oh no, he likes me. There was probably a little part of her wishing it was someone else. But... I while she didn't know what to think, I knew exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking I like this girl. I mean she was incredibly smart. Some some of you don't know this, but she actually went to John Brown on a full ride scholarship for academics. I thought she was incredibly kind. I had watched her interact with a lot of different people on campus. She was incredibly passionate about Jesus. It was so good for my faith to be around this girl. And I just thought she was incredibly attractive. So in case you couldn't tell, I thought she was incredible. And so because she was incredible, I wanted to give my time, my attention, my energy, even whatever little bit of money I had to her, as evidenced by an embarrassing coupon booklet. Now, if you've ever been head over heels for someone, you know what I was feeling back in December of 1992, you found someone that you were willing to give all of your time and attention and money and such. But even if you've never been in love like that, or in infatuation maybe I should say, you probably understand a little bit of what I was feeling. Maybe you've been crazy for a certain sports team. Maybe there was a, like a new video game or a genre of movie or a new book that you just, you, you know, as soon as you heard it, you're like, take my money, like you want this. Maybe there's a hobby. Like, that's all you can do when you're at work or when you're at school. You're thinking constantly about the time you're going to give, how you're going to invest more in it, because you want to give everything to it. Today, we're going to be challenged to consider, what are you willing to give to God? Now, I've heard a number of sermons on this idea. And I will be honest, the number of times I've heard a similar sermon as this, this idea of giving everything to God, I usually feel a lot of guilt. But I do not think that God brought you here today or or had you log on so that you could just receive a whole heaping pile of guilt. Because guilt is a horrible motivator. Like I could maybe try to guilt you into giving more to God, But it's going to last short-term. Instead, I want God to do long-term change in your life. I want it to be where you're giving embarrassing coupon booklets. Willingly and happily because you're so amazed at this incredible God. But my hope is that you will leave here today in that exact spot. That you will be inspired to want to give everything to God, because what I hope you see is that he's already given everything for you. So as we get ready to return to the book of Mark, let's pray. So Heavenly Father, I pray. um, Well, First, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the text we're going to read. And thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you have allowed us to come together today. And I pray that you would do what you need to. So God, I pray you help my voice to remain strong, that uh, I would not be distracted by by the way my body feels. I pray that no one would catch the cold that I have. But God, more importantly, I do pray that they would catch the passion that I have. This desire that that you have put in me to help people find you and follow you. Lord, all of us here in some way feel a a disconnect with you. Even those of us who've been walking closely with you and, and you're the most precious thing to us, we know that there are moments when, when we are not giving everything to you. But God, I pray that today we would not walk out of here feeling guilt. We wouldn't walk out of here thinking we need to just try harder. That instead, we'd walk out just absolutely inspired by who you are. Because God, you are incredible. You not only created us out of nothing, you then put your spirit in mankind. And even though we sinned, damaging that image of you within us, you have come to restore us. So God, I pray that that would motivate us, that would call us to want to give everything and not just some time, not just some energy, not just some of our attention, but to give you our very life. So God, do now what you need to do in our hearts so that you can begin to also then do through us what you desire. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you brought a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Mark chapter 14. Uh, If you are a first-time guest, we have been in the book of Mark for two years. I went this last week and looked. We started it on March 8th of 2020. So yes, two years in this book. Now, before you start freaking out thinking we study like two verses at a time, uh, we, we take breaks. So like here recently, we just did a, a four-week series on the Bible. Before that, we did 21 Days of Prayer. Uh, before that, it was Christmas. So we did an Advent series. So we've not been in Mark since mid-November. When we finished with Mark in mid-November, we finished up chapter 13, which means we're ready to move to chapter 14 today. Chapter 14 is where Mark really begins to make a significant shift in his narrative. From today to the till Easter, we will be looking at the events of Holy Week every single week. Now, we will have one week break in there. In two weeks, Patrick Ray is coming to preach. Uh, He's going to give us an update about the church planting they're doing in North Minneapolis of Northside Neighborhood Church. So I really encourage you, be here on March 20th. And if you can't be here, do everything you can to connect online, because I think it's going to be really encouraging, and, and we need to hear what God's doing up in North. But otherwise, other than Patrick coming, We're going to finish up the book of Mark at Easter, all right? Now, I know this is a little odd to say we're starting in chapter 14, but we're actually going to skip verses 1 and 2 today. Uh, We're going to come back to them in three weeks. So if you would, join me at verse 3, and we're going to read verses 3 through 9. So Mark 14, 3 through 9. And while he, Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table... Now, if, if you're new to this story, yes, what you just heard actually happened. A woman is at a dinner party where Jesus and his disciples are. She breaks open some sort of perfume bottle and pours it over his head. All right, that, let's just acknowledge it. That's bizarre. Right, imagine you're hosting a dinner party and one of your guests does that. You, you would not be sitting there thinking, oh, what a beautiful act she's done for that person. You'd be thinking Has she had a little too much to drink. Right? right, you're wondering, is she like a reseller of essential oils? You know, maybe she's a hairstylist trying something out new. Like, what is going on? Why would someone do this? Well, let, let me explain. This story is probably the same one that we read in John chapter 12. If you want, you can flip to John 12. If not, don't worry about it. We're going to put it up on the screen. But John shares a very, very, very similar story that I'm convinced is the same one. And he adds some details that Mark intentionally leaves out. John says that six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he cared about the poor, But because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, both John and Mark's stories take place in the town of Bethany. Bethany was a small town about two miles outside of Jerusalem. In other words, you could walk from Bethany to Jerusalem in probably, you know, like 30 minutes or or less. Um, John intentionally, though, says that this is taking place six days before the Passover. Uh, If you're familiar with the story of Jesus' triumphal entry... A week or so before his crucifixion, he comes into Jerusalem. And it says that he comes in from Bethany. So today's story is probably taking place just a day or so before Jesus' triumphal entry, which we remember on Palm Sunday. Right? Jesus is coming in. Now, John throws in that because the story is taking place in Bethany, he identifies some characters for us. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We've heard them earlier in the book of John, but not in the book of Mark. John lets us know that Mary and Martha are cousins, I mean sisters, and their famous story, if you aren't familiar with it, is that Jesus is there teaching, Martha's in the kitchen working like crazy, but Mary is out sitting at Jesus' feet, listening and learning, just like the other disciples, and Martha's really, really bothered by it. Another famous story, including this family, is their brother Lazarus passes away Jesus does not get there in time to heal him. And so Jesus shows up and Lazarus' body has been put in the tomb. And yet Jesus calls forth Lazarus and he comes out alive four days after dying. Then the third time you hear about them in John is this story right here. This means that the woman that Mark is talking about is probably Mary. Now, While Mark does not mention Mary, Martha, or Lazarus, he does mention a guy by the name of Simon. To differentiate this Simon from the other Simons within the Bible, he calls this guy Simon the leper. Now, it did not mean that Simon had leprosy at the moment. If he had had leprosy, he would be required by Jewish law to live outside the community in a village or or like a refugee camp, if you will, of lepers. So we don't know who this Simon the leper is, though. This is the only place in Scripture, here in Mark and in Matthew, is the only place we meet him. Some One commentary I, I heard postulated that this is the guy that Jesus healed in Mark chapter 1. Another commentary thought that this was actually Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' father, which would explain why Martha is there serving. Uh, I mean, yeah, Martha's serving, Lazarus is hanging out, Mary's you know, doing the whole ointment thing. But honestly, we don't know who this Simon was. But what is consistent between both stories is that there's this pouring of this ointment. Mark calls it pure nard. Nard comes from a plant called the spike nard. It grows in northern India as well as Nepal and China. It's out of like the honeysuckle family, and one plant produces this uh, like amber-colored ointment, but it doesn't produce a ton. So it takes quite a few plants in order to create an entire jar worth of the perfume. Now the stuff was considered valuable. It was used as a perfume, it was used as medicine, it was also used in some religious ceremonies. And when you figure out that the stuff came from Northern India, the shipping costs alone would cause this thing to elevate. Like We think we have it bad, imagine what it was like back then. So this stuff is incredibly expensive. That is why you see there in Mark, in verses 4 and 5, someone complains about it. Now, John tells us that it's Judas Iscariot. We're going to actually study Judas a little more in three weeks. But someone, including Judas, complains about it, saying this stuff could have been sold for 300 denarii. Now, a denarius was one day's wages. Usually it was represented in, in one coin, that coin would be given to a common laborer to pay for their full day of work. Then they could go and use that coin to buy the bread and the food that they needed to live for another day. Well, when you hear 300 denarii, maybe you do what I do. You just kind of think $300. All right, I would never spend $300 for perfume, all right? And yet, that does not really capture how expensive this stuff is. If you think about the ancient Jews, they worked... Six days a week, not just five like us. They worked six days a week. So they got one day off a week. And then let's just say they missed a few days here and there because of maybe the, the flu, maybe they got a cold, maybe they're helping their spouse or something. So they worked roughly 300 days a year. So this is, in other words, a year's salary. Let's put it in our rates. Uh, right now, let, a, a common laborer, let's just say construction. Right now, I, I asked Tim Corcoran, who works for Steggy Construction, I said, what would you guys be, you know, pay to hire someone who has no experience? What would be the hourly rate? And he texts me back and says, are you looking for a job? Like, is there something I should know? <laughs> then he lets me know that they would hire someone for about $15 to $20 an hour. So let's just go with $15 an hour for a common laborer. Let's just pretend they work an eight hour day. Let's pretend that those eight hours don't get uh, taxed. All right, there's no such thing as taxes in our little uh, imaginary scenario. So they make $120 per day. They work $300 in a year. That means they make $36,000. Now, some of you, you're thinking, $36,000? That, that's pretty good. Others of you are thinking, holy smokes, like, you can't live on $36,000. Like, what's, what's that going to get you? Like, you know, maybe a two-bedroom apartment and a 2003 Buick? Like, it would take you, like, 50 years just to pay off your student loans. Like, $36,000 is not that much. But what if you happen to, to go up into the attic and find some antique? Or your grandma d- gives something to you. You inherit this antique. You're wondering, I wonder what this thing's worth. So you go to the Antiques Roadshow... Some expert sits down and says, wow, what a find. I would estimate that this thing is worth $36,000. Now suddenly $36,000 sounds pretty sweet, doesn't it? Like what could you do with an extra $36,000? Maybe pay off some debt, eliminate all your debt, maybe upgrade your vehicle, like maybe you know, put it in the retirement account, maybe help you know your kid with college. Like what could you do with an extra $36,000? Many of you know that we're attempting to buy this building. We're going to need to raise $50,000. If we had $36,000, something just plunked into our lap, I mean, we're now two-thirds of the way there. This is a lot of money. So you can see why someone might complain that this woman wasted this ointment, this perfume, all on Jesus. But did she waste it? you got to realize it was coming in an alabaster flask. Alabaster is a stone that's kind of soft, and it was used to oftentimes make vessels. They were often used for liquids because stone, in not being porous, wouldn't soak it in, so it could preserve it quite well. But also, when it was something this highly fragrant, it kept the scent inside. However, they didn't just cork it like a wine bottle. They didn't have on screw top lids like a two liter of pop. Like they sealed it completely. So the only way to get it out was to crack it open. Once you cracked it open, that's it. You're going to have to use it. But Mary did not take it and go around and share it with everyone. Instead, it says that she poured it upon Jesus. She used all of it. Now, actually, I think I'll talk about that here a little later. Let me just double check. No, right here. Um, John mentions that Mary pours it on Jesus' feet. Mark says that she poured it on Jesus' head. Biblical skeptics will tell you there's a contradiction. In reality, though, it's probably both. But they included only one part, Because it played into the narrative that they wanted their readers to understand. John highlights that Mary is at Jesus' feet. Because the three times we meet Mary in his book, she's always at Christ's feet. The first time you meet Mary, she's at his feet learning like one of the disciples. Women did not learn, and yet Jesus allows her there. She's learning. So at the feet is the place of learning. Also, when Lazarus dies, Jesus shows up. Mary finds out. She comes running to him and immediately falls to his feet. So this is a place of humbleness. This is a place of desperation. And then she anoints his feet and takes her hair and wipes it, dries it, spreads it. Because this is a place of submission. John wanted us to see this sort of humility in Mary because this is the kind of humility that we should have before God. But Mark highlights that she's at Jesus' head for a couple of different reasons. In Jewish culture, it was common when someone showed up to your house, if you were a somewhat wealthy family, middle class or so, you would greet your guests with a dab of oil. Now, you would not use expensive nard like this. You'd use cheaper olive oil. But it would give off a pleasant scent. But also, it was an indication of blessing. The owner could just keep the oil for themselves, and they could use it for cooking. Uh, they, they thought there were medicinal purposes behind it. And, and so they could just keep it for themselves. But instead, they gave it. In other words, to say, I'm so blessed by your presence. I would rather give some of this oil to you than to keep it to myself. And here's Mary, not just dabbing Jesus on the head. She's pouring out upon his head. It's oftentimes at this point in a sermon Where a pastor will then say, and so if Mary's willing to crack open this expensive perfume and pour it all upon Jesus, what are you willing to give? Now, we're going to ask that question here in just a little bit, but I think this is the wrong place to ask the question in the sermon. See, this is why I would often hear a sermon like this and I'd leave feeling guilty. Because I'd feel like, oh no, I haven't been giving enough. I haven't given a whole alabaster flask full of $36,000 perfume to God. i really got to step up my game. Otherwise, God's not going to be happy with me. And so I think if we ask the question here and try to answer it now, that's when you're going to have guilt. That's when you're going to feel like you don't measure up. That's when you're going to feel like God's not very happy with you. But as I said earlier, I don't think God brought you in to feel guilty. I actually think God is absolutely thrilled with you. So what we need to do is we need to set this question aside for a time. We're going to ask it later because there's something else we need to consider from this story. When Mary is pouring out this ointment upon Jesus, she is doing three things for him. Do you remember when I introduced chapter 14? I said that in, this is the point in Mark's narrative where he shifts to the events of what we typically call Holy Week. This is all now rapidly leading up to the crucifixion and then resurrection of Christ. So there's something going on here. Well, the first, I think, is that she is unknowingly preparing Jesus' body for burial. We see this in um, verses 6 through uh, 8. Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can go do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus knows he is about to die. But in ancient Jewish times, after someone died the family would take the body, the corpse, and they would anoint it with oil and they would put spices upon it. It was seen as a loving act. It was not embalming like the Egyptians did. But the idea was you do this before you put it into this tomb because the body is going to decay and the stench is going to be awful. This was their way to offset that stench. Well, if you were familiar with the crucifixion story, Jesus' body is taken down and put in the tomb, but there's no spices, no oils put upon it. That is why on what Christians call Easter Sunday, you see a group of women heading to the tomb, hoping someone will be around to roll it away so that they can go in and prepare the body. They're going to put some spices, some oils on it, because it couldn't have happened on that Friday. And as you know, they show up and there's no body to be anointed It's almost like God knows exactly what's going to happen. And so he decides, you know what? We're still going to prepare the body. We're just going to have it happen a week early. And it's going to be Mary who's going to do it. She doesn't realize this is what she's doing. But as she's anointing his feet, as she's pouring this on his head, Jesus knows exactly what's happening. She's unknowingly preparing him for burial. But I also think there are two other things happening here. Throughout the book of Mark, Mark has been talking about the kingdom of God, and he's been wanting us to see Jesus as king. Well, whenever a king assumed their throne, they would often be anointed with oil. And so I think the second thing she's doing is she is unknowingly anointing Jesus as king. Now, she just thinks he's the Jewish Messiah. She thinks he's incredible. I don't think she fully understands that he's like not just the king of, you know, the kingdom of God, like he's the king of kings, the king of the universe. But God moves her to do this and I think that's why Mark highlights her anointing the head, not the feet, because he is the king. But I also think there's another thing going on here. And that is she's unknowingly presenting the gospel. I think she's pointing to the gospel The gospel story is that Jesus Christ, the only sinless person to have ever lived, came to this earth to die for us, the sinners. Our sin deserved death, but Jesus went and took the penalty for us. Well, as you look at what Mary did, she takes this incredibly expensive alabaster alabaster jar, this flask, breaks it open, and pours out all of its expensive contents, And that is exactly what Jesus did through the cross. Jesus, the most precious one to have ever lived and who still lives, came to allow himself to be broken and all of him poured out for us. His blood, his energy, his life. So that we could be redeemed, brought back into the fold, brought back into a relationship with the one and true God. I think she doesn't know what she's doing But she's unknowingly saying, this is exactly what Jesus is going to do in a week. And now, when you have Jesus in mind, the one who willingly allowed himself to be broken, the one who allowed himself to be poured out, with that in mind, now I think we can come to the question, what are you willing to give? What are you willing to do? Because it's not... You need to give like Mary gave. That, that's not the, the goal of Riverwood. That's not the goal, I think, of, of what we're to do. We are to live like Jesus lived and to love like Jesus loved. And when we see that Jesus gave all for us, now we don't feel guilty. Now we don't feel manipulated. Now we don't feel like we're doing this out of duty. We want to give because we see how incredible he is Suddenly, we want to give him our time. We want to give him our affections. We want to give him our money. We want to give him everything. Because he gave everything for us. So as we go into our time of communion, that's the question I want resonating around in your head. What are you willing to give? Because if Jesus was willing to give it all for you, is there something you've been holding back is there something that you've been holding your fists on? But God is saying, I want you to give it. Not because he's trying to guilt you into it. Not because he's trying to manipulate, spiritually twist your arm behind your back. But because he wants you to see how much he loves you, how incredible he is, and you can then give all of you to him. So Heavenly Father, as we go to these communion elements, as we look upon the one who went to the cross for us, I pray you would speak to us now. You would help us begin to know what we need to give, what you're calling us to give. God, for the person who's not given their life to you, the person who has not become a follower of Jesus yet, I pray that right now you would lead them through your Holy Spirit to give themselves. For those, though, who have already made that sort of a confession of faith, who have confessed their sins, who have given themselves to you, I pray you would just continue to open up their hearts and minds, to see where they still yet need to give. Not though out of guilt, not out of pressure, but out of joy, out of abundance, out of trust, out of love. So God, I pray that in these next holy moments, you'd speak. You'd speak to us as we sing. You'd speak to us as we pray. You'd speak to us as we consume this this wafer and this juice, that you would use these moments to help us not be more like Mary, but instead to be more like Jesus so that you can then do in us what you need to do, so you can do through us what you want to do. So God, we now offer you ourselves. And it's in Jesus' precious name, we pray. Amen. May we do this now.